Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Now, um, the song that you just heard, how many of you recognize that song? Okay. For those of you that don't, it is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And I want to let you know several things. One... If you come Christmas Eve, you're going to hear a startlingly different rendition of that. The other thing is why that song would be played on a Sunday morning in a church service. Um, You have to question that a bit. I mean, it's it's a secular song. It was made famous by Judy Garland in a movie entitled Meet Me in St. Louis. I'll explain that before we are finished here yet today. This is the closure of a three-part series. It stands alone by itself, though, in Seeking a Savior. We began with Seeking a Savior Expectant, and Simeon and others who were of a spiritually astute nature were expecting a Messiah. They were looking forward. They were longing for a Messiah. They were tuned spiritually to it and and aware of it, and were so grateful when they um, saw the presence of Christ. Then we talked last week about a more common group of people, Shepherds, people that represented very much the common people and the poor. They weren't expected as much because they didn't really understand perhaps as much, and if that was the case, they never expected that it would come to them. But suddenly their world was broken into by a heavenly choir, the greatest orchestration ever uh, released, and they are enraptured. They are caught up in joy, and their lives are transformed by the experience. Today I want to talk to you about seeking a savior, enlightened. And what we're dealing with here is um, a passage of scripture that is giving us an understanding from a different perspective of Jesus' birth. And it says after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, during the time of King Herod. So it marks a date for us. King Herod was an historical figure. And so we know uh, his life, and we know uh, about the time that he died, around 4 AD or so. And so this gives us a framework of, of where this was happening. And so as we look into this, we, we find basically two characters in this portion of the story. One is King Herod, termed the Great. Not everyone's perspective on that agreed. Um, he was viewed as great because of the tremendous um, building projects he did. He expanded the temple, made it one of the wonders of the world, uh, a number of, 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 of different buildings he made. But as an individual, not so great. And we'll get into that in a minute. The other grouping is um, the Magi. Now, these Magi who are coming, we honestly don't know. We, we've been referring to them as three kings. They've even gotten names over the times. In fact, I think there's a city, I think it may be Cologne, Germany, where uh, the bishop from centuries back had found the skulls of these three kings. And if you go there, they'll display to you the skulls of the three kings from, you know, which is whatever, okay? Um, 
we don't know how many there were. We surmise it sometimes because there were three gifts. But the reality is nobody knows. There could have been one, one uh, wise man or magi. There could have been uh, 50 of them. It appears it was a fairly large retinue of people. They would have come from some distance. Probably it's estimated as many as 900 miles possibly away. They're referred to as wise men, learned men. They would have been uh, steeped in the sciences. They would have been knowledgeable about astronomy and astrology, which in those days would have been mixed together oftentimes. Um, it is thought that they would have possibly come from the area of Ur of Chaldees, which Abraham originally came from, the area that used to be Babylon, uh, current of that time period, Parthia. Um, the unique thing about them we find, very unique for that time period, is they were monotheistic. They worshipped one God. And they were studiers of the stars, and something had struck them in some way. And we don't know what that was that caught them. We don't know whether it was a comet or a supernova or uh, if it was a conjunction of Jupiter and some other planets in place. But something had pointed them in this direction. There are some that, that want to refer to it um, possibly as uh, the Shekinah glory, some, something of the glory of God that was present on Jesus himself and that was shining up in such a fashion. Uh, Numbers chapter 24, 17 says, a star will come out of Jacob. And um, uh, the term star in that concept had a lot of broad meaning. And so um, th- that idea of even a reflected light around Jesus uh, creating a halo is where the fir- very first term halo comes from, is defined from. So these men were monotheistic. They had come from a distance. They had come from some movement in the heavens and of the star and of a light that had drawn them to this region to seek royalty. Uh, There are those that theorize, theorize because of where they came from that it's very possible that they had been influenced by a Jewish man of centuries back at a time when Israel was invaded and all the elite were carried off to Babylon, a young man named Daniel, uh, who has a book in the Old Testament, was carried off as well. And at one point in time, he's challenged to become one of these magi, one of these wise men. And so he's in training for all that and to learn all their wisdom. One of the real uh, conflicting moments is when the king of Babylon has this dream and he wants an interpreter. And one of the things these guys were into was interpreting dreams amongst their other tools of the trade and, and magic that they would do. In fact, the term magic or magician comes from magi. So the king calls all the wise men, all the magi of the Babylonians together and says, I have a dream and I want you to interpret it for me. They say, no problem. Oh, king, oh boy, just give us the dream. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, you figure it out without knowing the dream. Nobody can do that. Well, if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you all. That's what kings do. Daniel's given the same option. But God gives him the revelation, and so he goes to the king, and he completely establishes huge credibility by saying, here's the dream, king, that you haven't told anybody. And he all hears the interpretation of that dream. Now, all the magi, all the wise men of Babylon are watching all that. That, along with a number of other things Daniel did, had to have left a magnificent impression upon them and shaped. It's like, this is a winner, this isn't. And so it's one of the concepts is that they may have been, become followers even of Daniel, followers of his God in that process, and would have been caught up with the very idea of, 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 of establishing a different mindset even in that far place. So these magi, these wise men, 
are coming and they ask for one who is born king of the Jews. Now, that's an interesting phrase, born king of the Jews. You're not born a king as a general rule. You're usually a, a, a prince or, or some other thing and you're in training for a period of time. But, but Jesus' authority is innate. He was born king of the Jews. They come looking for this, this royalty in place. Now, here's an interesting thing that was of the time period. There was evidently a widespread expectation of a great king or deliverer throughout the Roman world, and particularly in the area of, of Judea. The Roman historian, Suetonius, speaks around the time of the birth of Christ, and he says this, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Another Roman historian, Tacitus, wrote around that same time period that, quote, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. The Jewish historian Josephus reports in his um, writing the Jewish wars about that same time that Christ's birth that the Jews believed that one from their country would soon become ruler of the habitable world. And so there was this widespread view that seemed to encompass that area. And this was unusual because Judea wasn't viewed as any great thing. In fact, if anything, it was a very negative perspective of, of Judea and of, uh, of, of Jews as a whole. It was a strange thing. So it's in the midst of this prophetic view and this, this common thought around all this time that these unusual men coming from the east from a long distance, having seen this light, that are, are monotheistic, that are, 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 are men of wisdom and learning and training, but evidently not politically astute because they walk into Jerusalem, the capital city of the area there, and they start asking where the king is that's about to be born or that's been born. And we read in the passage here that when King Herod heard this, that he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. Now, let's understand what this is about. They walk into a political quagmire. Herod the Great was not that great. Herod was, was not an Israelite. He was an Edomite. What he was is he was very good at politics. And he managed to get himself on the inside track of not just one Roman emperor, but actually several. And so he's made the king of Israel, even though he's an Edomite, a, a, a people group hostile to the Jews and the Jews hated. He, he built these great things and all this tremendous stuff. He satisfied his Roman um, rulers and used their forces to control things. But he was known for his bloodshed. No sooner had he taken control of things than he had a significant portion of the Sanhedrin, the ruling group of Israel, uh, annihilated. He killed 300 court officers. Not only did this in scale here to control and gain power and, and hold it, as time goes by, he murders his wife and then her mother, Alexandra, his eldest son, Antipater, and two other sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. He, he murders three of his kids, his wife and his mother-in-law. It was so bad that Augustus, at one point in time, the emperor, as much as he liked what he was doing for him, didn't like his nature and behavior, made the statement in an aside that it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. 
You know, Herod, even though he was not Jewish, followed the Jewish laws to placate the people he was ruling. And in Jewish law, you didn't eat pork, and therefore a pig was safe in his household, but a son was not. This guy was raw. Herod was so mean. How mean was he? Thank you. I'm glad you asked that. He was so mean that when, when he got a terrible illness that was killing him off, he goes to Jericho to try to recover, realizes he's going to die. He has his minions gather um, hundreds of the most important, significant, well-known men of Israel in an arena in Jericho with the orders that the moment he dies, they're all to be executed. The reason being is he thought no one would mourn his death. So he wanted to make sure that someone was going to cry over his death. The relatives of all these people that he's going to have killed. This was how narcissistic. This is how twisted, this is how evil this guy was. Fortunately, his minions did not carry out um, his command at the um, death that he had. And so they lived on. So the Magi go to the capital city. They don't know what they've walked into. They ask for a king that's been born. There's already rumblings that have been going on for decades in the area. King Herod hears this, and the scripture says that he was disturbed. You don't want Herod disturbed. And then it says all Jerusalem with him. Why? Because when the big guy gets disturbed, people die. And so this is the passage why it's saying he was disturbed, but all Jerusalem with him. They're all trembling over his response. When he'd called together all, and notice this as you look at this passage, which is a very interesting, uh, um, uh, when he had called together all the what? All the people's chief priests. He didn't call together the chief priests. He called together all the people's chief priests. Why? They weren't his chief priests. He followed the basic law so there'd be no rebellion. But he didn't believe any of it. He didn't buy into any of it. It never touched his heart or his soul. So he gathers the people's chief priests and the people's teachers of the law. And he asks them, where's the Messiah? And and where's he supposed to be born? And then they give Herod a Bible lesson. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judea, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So he's given a Bible lesson. He's given instruction on the birth of Messiah that now he's being told with these guys, it has happened. He's given instruction in the word of God. He's asked for it. He's told it's present and it's real. And it doesn't touch one iota of his heart. How many messages like you're hearing this morning have you heard? How many times have you read scripture? How many times have you been told this or that about God? And it's not shaped or transformed your thinking of who you are. 
that we are so caught with the material world and the things around us that we can't release the things that are in our hands for the things that God would place within them. Herod hears this, and it touches him not. What he's really interested in is something much deeper. So he calls the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Right after the Bible lesson, right after knowing Messiah is here, God's chosen one that's going to free everyone, and it's going to be amazing and usher in an incredible time. Not on my watch. When did you hear about this? When was the exact time that the star appeared and this birth happened? And he makes note of it. He sends them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So he understands this is supposed to be deity. There's supposed to be an act of worship here. But he's driven by power. Power alone. It's the only thing he wants. Too often, we are seeking a savior in the realm of politics, in different realms of business or anything else. We keep looking for the brightest and the best that will somehow, with new technology or or new laws or new things, will usher in a new age. and, And we're constantly seeking a savior instead of seeking the savior. We keep putting our hope and our expectations in individuals who over and over again turn out to be Herod's. And oftentimes we even know it going in and we don't care because at least somehow they'll get us ours. And we keep hoping for that, looking for that, instead of searching for the things of God. We keep thinking if we just pass more laws, more legislation, get more representatives here and there and somehow rulings this and that way, that somehow will shape the human heart. We will never shape the human heart by legislation. Only God can change the heart of man. Only an encounter with God changes the heart of man so that true justice, true mercy, true grace reign. Only the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus Christ transforms our reality. He says, report to me, I may go and worship. And after they heard the king, they went at their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them. Something happens and it rises up again and they're giving instruction until it stops over the place where the child was and when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. There's a joyousness with this. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped. And then they opened their treasures and presented them with gifts of, of gold. Gift that you give royalty. You see, you never show up before royalty without bringing gifts. You always bring gifts if you're going to show up before the king or any great person. It's just what you do. We had a gathering in our house not too long ago, and, and we're not even royalty, and someone showed up with a gift. Had a chance to open it after they left, and it was a really, really cool little ornament that was a candle. It was incredible. My wife and I were both sitting going, This is a really cool gift. We felt very loved and very royal. But you come before a king, you bring a gift. And for a king, it's gold. Brought frankincense. Frankincense is an incense that you'd offer to a deity. It's something that you'd use in the worship to a deity. They brought myrrh. Myrrh is what the Jews would use to wrap someone after they had died to withhold the stench of the body and the death that was there. And so these guys, whether they realize it or not, bring a prophetic element to this, recognizing the kingship and the royalty 
of, of Jesus, recognizing that he's deity in some fashion, and also recognizing that there's going to be a death, that there's going to be something that is going to, to be a sacrifice in the midst of all these things. So all this is taking place, and, 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 and then as we look at the passage a little bit further, we're told that, that after they had done this, they'd been warned in a dream. Remember these guys were big dream interpreters? So they'd been warned in a dream. They didn't have to ask what the dream was. They were the ones having the dream. And as they get together afterwards, you have the same dream. I had the same dream. You have the same dream. We had the same dream. What do you think it means? Well, I think it means that they determined not to go back to Herod. We should not have talked to that guy. We're not going back there. And they returned their country by another route. Of course, Herod, when he doesn't get the report, he had a reason why he asked for that exact time. So he doesn't hear back. He goes and he has everyone that relates anywhere near that time period that he'd been told slaughtered just to make sure of things. We're told in Galatians chapter 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So we might receive adoption as sons. And we've talked about but women are included in this category as well too. To be a son in the ancient time was to be lifted up amongst all. And we're told that, that there is no delineation anymore. That we are all women and men alike. We are all sons in this sense. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Daddy, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son then an heir through God. In the fullness of time. This was the perfect time for Jesus Christ to come. There was a written language that was universal. There was a transportation system and what was called the Pax Romana, a time for the word to spread like it never could have at any other time in history. And the fullness of time came in order to cause redemption, a restoration of people. Jesus, as he grows and is faced with a temptation in the desert by Satan, when he finishes that temptation, he begins his ministry later on in Matthew chapter 4. He goes to the area of Galilee, and this passage is referenced, and it's a, a, a reminder of a previous uh, prophecy and prophetic statement. So Matthew chapter 4 says, People living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has done. Now, I, I, I've said this before. I am fascinated with flashlights. I'm fascinated with the ability that, that to turn on and create light where there's darkness. I have roughly 10,000 flashlights all around the house. My wife is always wanting me to clear out the flashlights. And I do, and then I get other ones. I have two lasers, one's in my office, one's at, at home, and, and they're, they're, they're so powerful that you can point out stars with them at night. That is so cool. I can press a button. I can shoot a beam of light out into space and touch stars. That is amazing. I mean, think of it, guys. Almost all of eternity, all of mankind's history, people were in darkness. At best, they could light a candle. And then suddenly they could see what's going on around them and, and maybe do some work or something. We have full lights. We can, we can do whatever we want to do. We can, we, it's, it's just amazing. Without light, we can't see. These wise men had been pursuing a light that had lifted up and lit up their entire world and transformed their thinking. Herod chose to stay in a dark place. He chose to stay in that place. This lighting up, this redemption of people, 
Matthew begins not in the second chapter, obviously, but it begins in the first chapter, and it begins with a genealogy of Jesus, which is typical for Judaism. What's not typical is that within that genealogy, you find four unique women, and that was just unusual. You didn't reference women in the Jewish genealogy, but in this case, they not only reference the women, but it's the, the type of women they are. Matthew references Tamar. As one of Jesus' descendants, she sold herself as a prostitute to her father-in-law Judah to bring forth the twins that would eventually carry on the lineage because um, her father-in-law wouldn't follow the law properly and make sure she was married. You've got Rahab. She was a Gentile prostitute at Jericho. God redeems the only one saved, her and her family, out of all of Jericho. She's a Gentile. She's the line of Jesus. You got Ruth. She's a Gentile as well. And while she seemed to have been a nice young lady, she, she, she only comes under the covenant through marriage. And then you got another unique one who's referenced, interestingly enough, not as, the, as David's wife, but been the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. We've been the wife of Uriah, who David had murdered so he could fulfill his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. What is the sense of having these women in, in the lineage of, 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 of Jesus? It goes to this idea of redeeming those who are under the law. It goes to those who are in darkness, having seen the great light. The idea is that if these four women, with their dark backgrounds, and the men, incidentally, who had even darker backgrounds in that listing, if these people in the lineage of Jesus can find salvation through Christ, anyone in this room can. Any of us can. That's why it's included. You were included, not excluded. People living in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, living in it, the light has dawned. There's a classic science fiction story from a guy named Isaac Asimov. In this short story, it's a planet who has six suns revolving around in such a way that the planet never has nightfall. The title of the book, short story is Nightfall. And, and, and because of the way it is, it's always daylight. And, and they have caves and they have places they can go into where there's no light, but, but they get really claustrophobic and weird about it. It just freaks them out. They're just so used to light all the time. And then their scientists find um, in studying that, that every 2,000 years, something seems to destroy their civilization great fires and just devastates and destroys the civilizations and all they have are the mumbled things of children and, and, and people that survived it. And from this to be able to make projections and realize that there's a hidden moon they don't know that, that at a proper time when there's a certain sequence of things is going to blot out the one sun that's shining at that time and that will cast nightfall. The first nightfall, the first darkness in 2,000 years falls on the planet. They try to warn everyone. They try to explain, this is what's going to happen. We've got to prepare for it. we ready for it. we handle it. But when the night falls and they experience universal darkness, they go mad. Everyone goes insane. And in an attempt to get some light generating again, they set the cities on fire and they burn down their whole civilization again just to try to get some semblance of light because the darkness drives them mad. The darkness on this planet has driven everybody mad has established something of a foothold within our own hearts and our own minds to the degree that we don't even realize that we've been living in darkness, that many of us don't even realize the shadow of death that we walk in. 
This passage in Matthew chapter 4.16, it's a um, quotation drawn from the prophet Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, I like how it starts. It says, there'll be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. There'll be no more gloom for those living in distress. This is the promise of Messiah. This is the promise of Jesus. This is the promise of Christmas. And that brings us to a little town in the Midwest called St. Louis where Judy Garland and a bunch of people got together and did a movie. The movie was released in November of 1944. Some of you who are historians will recall that there was a little event going on at that time called World War II. It was 1944, November. And the story is of a family living in the Midwest in St. Louis who the father, for business reasons, is determined they're going to move across the country to New York. And the family is devastated by this decision because all their friends, um, all their history, everything's in St. Louis. And so they're mourning the loss and departure of, of everything they've known and they're going to go away. And one of the key moments in, in the movie is Judy Garland as she established herself as a star in this moment as she's singing to her little sister, this little girl, and she's singing this song. But the song that we know, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. It's not the original lyrics. The original lyrics as written and given to Judy She read those, and she says, there's no way I can sing this song, especially to my little actress uh, sister here. She'll break down in tears. This is the most depressing piece of music I've ever heard. You have to rewrite this song. So what were the original lyrics? Here they are. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. Next year, we may be all living in the past. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Pop that champagne cork. Next year, we may all be living in New York. No good times like the olden days. Happy golden days of yore. Faithful friends who were dear to us will be near to us no more. But at last, we'll all be together if the Lord allows. From now on, We'll have to muddle through somehow. So, have yourself a merry little Christmas now. Yeah, Judy said, I can't sing that. <laughs> My little actress girl, she's going to break down and it's going to screw up the whole thing. You got it. And the guy said, I, mean, I wrote it. It's a good song. You wrote it. And they fought over it until she managed to convince him. So he went back to the drawing table and he came back and he wrote what we know now. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. Here we are as in olden days 
happy golden days of your faithful friends who were dear to us. They gather near to us once more. And through the years, we will all be together. They put, if the fates allow, I'm going to stay with, if the Lord allows. Hang a shining star upon the highest bough and have yourself a merry little Christmas now. Now here's the interesting thing about that, not just the rework of that, but this. This was released in November of 1944. The war was raging on. No one knew that just six months later, in May of 45, that the battle would be won, the war would be over. They were six months away from victory. They didn't realize that six months prior, in June 7 of 44, that an incredible battle, D-Day, on the coast of Normandy had been fought that really declared and decided the war. All historians agree, after that, the war was over. It was just a long mopping up action for a year. And so six months prior to this, the war had already really been won. The fighting just continued on. And six months after, it was going to be finished. We also stand in the midst of a war today. We know we're facing pestilence and disease. We're facing political divide, racial unrest. We're facing psychological disaster on so many different levels that is raging on and fighting. There's a darkness that wants to consume every single person that walks on this planet. There's a song that even is played, and it's the first version of that song, and it drags us down into the dark, and so we end up being in what we call a dark place, where power is all that's left. But Jesus came to rewrite the song. He established victory at his death and resurrection. And now we're just waiting for the battle to be over. But it's already, the war has already been won. Seeking not just a savior, but seeking the savior. Being enlightened, which means we have full comprehension of the problems that we're facing, but also know that we're freed from ignorance and misinformation and the darkness that can beset us, that we approach seeking not just a Savior, but we seek the Savior. That there's an enlightenment of, a, of an understanding of coming out of our ignorance and coming out of the darkness, for, bowing the, for bearing the way of, of, of Herod, and instead pursuing the way of Christ. That we recognize that there'll be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And for those of us who think that there cannot be that salvation for us, that, that the things we have done have eliminated that possibility, I would say to you, think of Tamar. Think of Rahab. Think of Bathsheba. Think of so many others that have gone before you that should have been outside the realm of salvation and were not, and neither are you that this grace is available for you as well. Herod saw it. He heard the message. He knew it was right within walking distance, but power was too much for him, and his darkness was more to be embraced than the light that would have drawn him out. Jesus came to the Jew first, then to us Gentiles. Jesus came to the humble and the ignorant first, the shepherds, etc., and then to the honorable and the learned wise men. Jesus came to the poor first, and then he came for the rich. 
My message to you this morning is simply this. For those of you who have not taken hold of the message of Jesus Christ, don't take Herod's route. Take the way of the wise men. Repent of your sin even on this day. Embrace the Messiah. Embrace salvation regardless of your past. And for those of you who have embraced that already, but have found yourself in a dark place, that you feel the gloom and the darkness all around you, don't give up. Realize the battle, the war has been won. The battle rages on, but the war has been won. And it's not too long further where it'll be completely taken care of. Take hold of God's grace and the light that is present, even here in this present darkness. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Those of you in this room who've tasted God's grace have stepped out of that into darkness. Let this be your moment to step back in. I've had two friends recently who were in a darkness so deep they didn't think they'd ever come out of it. Both of them were present here today And there was a transformation that I saw in their face and in their eyes that told me that they had walked out of that moment and by God's grace were standing in their right mind once again. This grace is available to all who would avail themselves of it. We are less than a week or two away from the end of 2021. I still remember a 2001 space odyssey when everything was supposed to be resolved and we'd be flying all over the the world and the planets and junk. Here it's 2021 and we're still dealing with what we deal with. Herod heard the messages and it meant nothing. He wouldn't even walk down the street six miles to Bethlehem. Wise men saw the light. They went 900 miles roughly in that direction. Today, God's presence is here. And so, Father, we come before you. And I raise up to you right now those who have never, ever reached out their hand to you. And Lord, this morning, as they hear this message, as it penetrates their heart and their mind, I pray, Lord, that that they'd walk whatever distance necessary. And in this case, it's right here. All they have to do is open their hand and their heart before you. No travel at all. That this morning they would do so and receive your grace. That they'd repent of their sin. That they'd seek your forgiveness and, and realize that you are a king. That you are God. And that you also died for them. That the gifts of the Magi would be a gift of salvation, even of awareness to them today. And the Lord, for others of us who follow you and have striven so diligently, and the battle's gotten so hard, the darkness has gotten so deep, it penetrates our very soul, it seems, wants to extinguish the light within us, God, that is just your glory and your grace. Father, I pray this day that that your Holy Spirit would rush into those hearts as they'd open to you and that you would enliven and encourage. 
that you stamp out that original song that is so dire and raise up the joy once again. The joy of knowing you. Of praising you. Being with your people. Of hearing your word. Of singing your songs. Lord God, I pray that you would make this for both of those individuals the merriest Christmas of all. We have one more Sunday in this year. That's it. That's a whole new ball game again. Pantries out there, go by. Take something for someone. Surprise somebody in your neighborhood, but, but minister to them. Um, for those of you that I will not see at, uh, at the uh, uh, Christmas Eve service, have yourself a merry little Christmas. God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that while we were walking in the valley of the shadow of death, while we were walking in darkness, that you chose to break into that darkness with your truth and your light and your grace. And I pray, God, that you'd strengthen every soul within the sound of my voice here, whether in this room now or scattered in rooms across this uh, region. We thank you, we honor you, we praise you, and we lift up the name of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the church could say amen. Amen. Merry Christmas, guys.